we've been spending the last, uh, the last several weeks uh, looking at kind of what is the center of the Christian faith, the gospel. And, and what sort of, if that is the center of our faith, like what sort of what culture that should create in us? Like what, what, is, what kind of culture does the gospel create um, in us? And what we said the gospel is, is that the gospel is that, that we are not saved because of anything that we do. Or could do. We are saved wholly through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Dying for our brokenness. Living a perfect life. Breaking the power of death and sin. And welcoming, offering us a new kingdom, a new way of living, a new future. And there's nothing that you and I could do to make God love us more. And there's nothing that we have done that could make God love us less. We are saved sheerly of God's grace. And that leads to a question. It's a question we haven't addressed yet, but I want to go into a little bit this morning, which is that like, if we believe that's true and that like, it doesn't matter what I do and I could do something and that can't lo- I can't lose my salvation over that or God's not going to love me more or less depending on how I live my life, well, doesn't that mean that we can just live however we want? We can do whatever we want. Right? If I know God is going to forgive me, like why stop sinning? Why not just kind of keep doing whatever it is that I want to do? And I, I would call this kind of the high school senior problem. Um, this is a graduation time. We had our one high school senior in first service. But my last, uh, my last semester of high school, um, I had been accepted into the college I was going to go into. All of my scholarship applications were complete, which meant like my acceptance and my performance could not improve anything. Like sort of like the gospel, right? Your performance cannot improve your status before God. So like senior year of high school, last, last semester, my performance no longer made any difference for my future. And so what I did, the first thing I did was I found out the maximum amount of days you could skip school and not get in trouble. It was 10 at Brownsburg High School in, in Brownsburg, Indiana. And I started planning out, I planned to miss the maximum amount of days. And it got so bad, at one point my mom, who's a, she's a school teacher, you know, already dealing with me as a high school student, uh, high school senior, she'd yell up at me, Tim, are you going to get ready for school, get ready for school? And finally, like halfway through the semester, she started yelling something different uh, up at me, which was, Tim, are you, are you going to school today? Which is great. I mean, it's sort of an exaggeration because my mom will probably listen to the sermon later and, and uh, through the podcast and be like, that didn't happen. It actually did happen one time. She did yell up at me, are you going to school today or should I just call you in? Uh, that really happened. Um, but that, that's what I did. Like I, there was no, no longer could I do anything to ex- ex- uh, improve my performance, improve my acceptance. And so I lived accordingly. And that raises the question, like, if, okay, if the gospel's true, does that mean our lifestyle becomes like what my lifestyle was my senior year of high school, which was skip school and go play golf? Like, is that, what we're, is that what the gospel leads to? Won't the gospel do that? If we're accepted sheerly of grace and we cannot improve what God thinks of us or how God will respond to us, can't we just live how we want? No. In Galatians 5, it, it unpacks why. The gospel, it, it doesn't give us freedom to live however we want. It gives us a better kind of freedom. And Galatians 5 kind of goes into that. And it starts, where we'll start in Galatians 5, is that Paul begins in the first, two ver- or the first verse uh, by reminding us that the gospel, it reveals to us the two ways that we lose our freedom. It's a gospel five, it's a, or gospel, Galatians 5, sorry, it's a, it's a hinge passage. So these verses are sort of like, in the last few chapters, Paul has unpacked the theology of what the gospel is. And now he's going to move and begin to unpack what kind of person the gospel should create. And so these are really important Verses. And so the first verse in Galatians 5 is kind of a repeat of everything Paul said in the first four 
chapters. And so some of this is repetition, but it's, real, it's actually really important repetition because we forget it and we don't live out of it and we need to live out of it. And so here's verse 1 where Paul starts, really a summary of the first four chapters of Galatians. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's a little hidden, and it only sounds like Paul's saying there's one way that we lose our freedom here. Because there's actually two ways. And the first one is probably one we, we know by well or know well at this point, having been through this letter. The first way we lose our freedom is through moral conformity to religious law, where we have to earn our salvation by meriting good works so that God will accept us or receive us. And so that kind of, again, the heart of the debate of this letter is that the Galatians, there's a group of people at the church who've said, if you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the Jewish law, and if you keep the Jewish law, then you will be a Christian. And of course, we don't do that anymore. We do different things like, well, if you vote this way or if you do these things, then you're saved. But you have to do these things in order to prove that you are saved. And Paul cannot say this enough, but he says, anytime you start doing that, anytime you start saying, I have to do this in order to be saved, in order to, to merit my place before God, you are trading gospel freedom in for slavery. And I know we've said, listen, we've said that a lot in this series. We cannot say it enough. Anytime you start thinking, well, I, I got to pray enough, I got to go to church enough, I got to be good enough, you know, I have to be a good enough parent, I have to do X, Y, whatever those things are, I have to do that in order for God to accept me, you're, a, you're, lo- you're giving up gospel freedom and trading it in for bondage, for slavery. But Paul, he's actually saying there's another way you can lose your freedom here. Because what he says in verse 1 is he says, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And there's a lot hinging on that word again. The first way that you can lose your gospel freedom is to try to merit your salvation through good works. The second way you can lose your freedom is to sort of throw off the religious law and live however you want. You say, where do you get that from? Well, remember what we talked about last week. That When Paul says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, he's, speak, he's, tell, he's telling the Galatians, don't go back to your former life. And their former life, they weren't Jewish. They were, they were not Jewish. They were Greeks. They were Romans. They lived out of a Greek and Roman religious system. And so what Paul's doing, and we talked about this last week, Paul's actually comparing religious conservatism, like you have to, do, you have to live this law to be saved, with cultural liberalism. Live however you want, be free, and, and throw off religious constraints. Because that's how Greco-Roman religion worked. There were almost no moral imperatives, so um, they were very loose in terms of how they understood sexuality. They uh, had almost no expectations of giving to the poor, of being a moral, dignified... Per- like just, it was a very different religious system. And so Paul, when he says, listen, don't become Jewish and start becoming a religious conservative where you have to earn your salvation through the law, because that's slavery like when you did whatever you wanted. It's, it's, you're going back into slavery. And I find that really fascinating. That he compares their life as, as Gentiles in Gentile religion with what Jewish religion of, of earning your, your salvation through the law would be like. Because in many ways, like our current culture is very similar to what Greco-Roman culture was like. Kind of our, our cultural catchphrases of, of be true to yourself, you do you, those sorts of things. That's sort of what Greco-Roman religion culture was like. And yet Paul says, if you live however you want, that's, that's slavery. Right? So either like, become very religious and think that you have to be very moral in order for God to accept you. That's slavery. Or get rid of religion, live how you want, and that's slavery. So why? Why 
are both these paths, paths away from freedom and towards bondage. And I think the religious way is, is clear, even though it's probably the one we tend to, most of us in this room probably tend to struggle with. Because if, if you think that you have to earn your salvation before God, if you think you have to merit your place before God, it means every time you pray, every time you go, you go to church, every time you do something good, you're always trying to earn your place before God. It's not settled. It's still open. Which means you could lose it. Which means you could walk into this place this morning and be unsure. Does God want to hear from you? Is, does he love you? Is he your father? Like, is he, does he want to know, like, does he want to know you? All, all of that's open. And you have to live under this crushing weight of, are you performing enough? Are you doing enough? Are you good enough? Will God abandon me? Does he love me? That if you live in, in that sort of way, you're, actually, you're just a slave trying to convince God to make you free. So that, I think that way, probably many of us, under, like, we've lived under that. It's, it's very crushing. It's very, but how does the other way? How, how can Paul say, don't go back to being... You know, don't become a Jewish person keeping the Jewish law, you know, because that's slavery, just like when you were a Gentile and did whatever you wanted. How can Paul say that? And that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But there, there are kind of two things I want to say. Well, we'll, I'll say more about it later, but two reasons why, kind of if, if you do you, be true to yourself, like that is as, as enslaving as religious conservatism. Two reasons why. Um, the first is if, if that's kind of your life motto, you are, you're incredibly vulnerable to circumstances, that if you find your, like the basis of your identity or your meaning in something that is finite, whether that's your, your career or your family or um, romance or sexuality, those sorts of things, then your entirety, like your entire life foundation is built on something you could lose. So what if, well, I mean, what if your romantic interest lets you down or leaves you? Right, so your entire identity is fragile or what if in your career you don't you either get fired or you don't like go as far as you think you should have gone you feel like you could have done more or with your family what happens if a kid abandons you or a parent fails you if you build your identity around all of these like really good things one phone call can i can change all of it and I, like as a pastor, I'm like with, that happens a lot to people. If that hasn't happened to you, like that will probably happen to you at some point. And if you're building your identity around these finite things, which feel very freeing, and I can do what I want, I can live how I want, they're actually not. They're incredibly vulnerable to circumstances and to change. So that's one reason. But secondly is, you know, if, if kind of the, the motto of like live how you want, be who you want, uh, be true to yourself, that sort of thing, it's actually... It's as enslaving as, as religious conservatism because, again, everything depends on you. As I think, think of it through the lens of the, the movie that just came out not too uh, long ago, uh, The Greatest Showman. It's about uh, it's Hugh Jackman, P.D. Barnum uh, story, kind of how Barnum Bailey Circus started off. And a few weeks back, uh, Misty really wanted uh, our whole family to watch it on a Sunday afternoon, which just about guaranteed for the middle hour and a half I was going to sleep through it all, because like Sunday afternoon is just like prime nap time for me, and I nap, I nap good um, on Sunday afternoons. So it was, a, it was a good, it was a great movie for me. I got a great nap in, saw the beginning and the end, it was lovely. It's actually some really catchy tunes in it. It was a great movie for the most part for our kids, except for uh, Abel, our two-year-old, thought that the bearded lady was Chewbacca, and so every time she came on screen, he ran out of the room, um, which kind of feels problematic, um, but, but the movie, basically, like it's all about, it's all about freedom. 
Right, it's Hugh Jackman saying, I'm not going to be held down by my past as someone who is in the, the poor social working class. I'm going to break out of that and become wealthy and powerful and do whatever I want. Or it's uh, the people who are a part of the attraction of, of the circus who are like, I, don't, I may be different, but I'm going to be, or the, the title song, this is me, I'm coming out. Like, right? This is who I am. I'm going to be free. I'm not going to let your uh, perspectives hold, hold, hold me back. And so that's kind of the whole movie's about, it's about freedom. And of course, What's interesting is Hugh Jackman has like amazing, I mean, he starts the circus, he gets, makes lots of money, he has incredible success. But as he's freely chasing this life, he's actually destroying, he's destroying his family. And he almost loses both his family and the circus, if you've seen the movie. So actually, like, he thinks he's free and breaking out of, of his social class, but actually he's, he's, he's ruining everything he loves. And so uh, about the time my nap ended, um, I woke up for like the closing song, which is like, this is, a, this is really fascinating to me. So the, the end song, kind of the redemption song, the like, now everything's changed song moment. It's, it's called From Now On. Here's some lyrics um, from that. I just found, I found this fascinating. So here's the lyrics. Uh, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. And let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now, I wanted to actually, but I know you don't want me to. Actually, you don't want me to. But from now on, right? Like, which is if you think about that, that like that is the prayer of a religious conservative trying to earn their salvation through the law. Right? You you wake up in the next morning, you've sinned. Okay, God, forgive me. But from now on, I'm not going to do that anymore. Just just let me back in one more time. From now on, I won't do it. It's the, the same prayer of the, the culturally liberated person who has no ties to religious law or whatever. It's the same prayer as the religious conservative because everything's based on you. Will you live into your identity? Will you be true to yourself, right? Will you, keep, will you stop sinning? It doesn't matter. It's the same bondage. And the prayer from now on just gets repeated again and again and again. You better get it right. You better keep performing. You better not have circumstances change. And that's just, that's, from now on is not freedom, right? That's not, that's not a freeing way to live. So how, how is the gospel different than either like religious conservatism, earn your salvation through the law, or, you know, a cultural liberal, like live however you want. How is the gospel freeing unlike those two? And that's where Paul goes next. The gospel frees us with a new way to change. And Paul says something in verses 5 and 6. It's really the, kind of the heart of where we'll be. The rest of this morning. This is kind of the heart of, of how Paul understands how the gospel changes us and frees us. Paul writes, For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, one of the gifts that we get in the gospel is the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we're told the Holy Spirit does here is help us wait for the hope of righteousness. What does Paul mean by that? Now, there's two words, hope and righteousness. So we just got to define those. So what does it mean that we wait for the hope of righteousness? Well, righteousness first. Uh, we've unpacked that kind of through several sermons. But righteousness basically means, it means to be morally good, to be accepted before God. To be righteous before God means you can stand before him and know you're accepted, you're, you're loved, you're welcomed, you're forgiven. And so Paul, when Paul says we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, one thing he's saying is we eagerly wait for that day when we stand before God and God pronounces us as his people through the gospel forgiven and pure and right. So that's righteousness. But what does it mean that we wait the hope of righteousness? 
right? Because, I mean, think, think about that day, the day when you stand before God. Do, you, do we hope for that day? Should we fear that day? Should we be anxious about that day? Well, that's why Paul doesn't just say we wait for the day when we stand before God. It's the hope of righteousness. And hope in English, it means a little bit something different than hope in Greek. The hope in English is sort of inherently uncertain, right? So I might say something like, um, I, hope, I hope the Royals will win 20 straight games and get back to 500, Right, like that's a very uncertain statement, right? But I can, I hope it. It's, I will hope against all uh, reality in front of me, like, right? But that, that's not true in Greek. You would not use the word hope like that in Greek because in, in Greek, the word hope is certain. It's not uncertain, it's certain. And so Christians, we don't, we don't wait for the hope of righteousness as if like, what is God gonna say? I don't know. No, what Paul is saying is because of the gospel, because Jesus has made you right and forgiven you, not because of your works, but because of his grace, we, we hope with certainty for that day when we will stand right before God. It's the hope of righteousness. And so then Paul goes on to, to lay out really how it is that we Christians change. How we go from enslaved to sin and habits and brokenness and into Freedom, And that's verse 6 when Paul says, it's not circumcision nor uncircumcision that counts for anything, but faith working through love. So he's saying two things there. One, circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, which of course, probably to us, like, why does that, what is he saying? That sounds weird. Why is he talking about circumcision? Well, thinking of the whole letter, circumcision, all that means is, is you're living your life by the law. You're trying to earn your salvation before God. You're trying to merit your place before God through your works. And what Paul is saying is, like, go ahead, get circumcised. It doesn't matter. Like, this does not improve your place with God. Right? You, you can't do anything to make your life uh, more lovable before the eyes of God, to make yourself more accepted before God. You can't. Circumcision doesn't count like that anymore. And, but then he also says, nor does uncircumcision count for anything. And what Paul means there, uncircumcision is just a metaphor for kind of like living how you want, for sinning. And he's like, just like, like your good works no longer put you in, in with God now, so your bad works don't take you out. It's not how the gospel works. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. But, Paul says, faith working through love. And that, that's, sort of how we, that's sort of how Paul understands how we change. How we go from being burdened slaves, either, either living how we want or as religious conservatives trying to earn our salvation through the law. Like faith, like trusting the gospel to save us gets inside us and changes us on the outside. That the gospel produces in us inside-outside change, inside-out change, not outside-in change. Right, so think, think of it like this. The, the, uh, there's a professor, a seminary professor named uh, Richard Lovelace. He uses the illustration of, of how we change through the gospel, like thinking like a rod of steel. So if a rod of steel, if it's bent or if it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not straight anymore in any way, there's, there's two ways to, to get it back straight again. One is to like really like use power and try and force it back, you know, beat it against the wall or whatever you got to do to bend it back straight. Many of you here, your builders, you know, you know of what I'm speaking. I do not know what I'm speaking. But like you, you, you try to force it back, and that's how religion works. It's like you're morally broken, get it together, try harder, force your way back into a straight line. That's one way of, of, of change. Which, of course, if you do that, it actually makes the steel more vulnerable, weaker, more fragile, which is why religion often crushes people, why, why it's oppressive to people. 
But the gospel, is a, that's outside-in change. The gospel is inside-out change. And there's another way to make the steel rod go straight again, and that's to, to put it in the fire. And melt it down, soften it up, and reset it back to the straight. And that, that, what Paul's saying is, by faith, we come to Jesus in the gospel. Our hearts are melted. We're changed. And then out, out of that comes love, comes a new life, a changed, free life. And so, okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? That's, that's where I want to spend, in some ways, it's like really hard to explain because it's, I can't say, well, here's the five ways you melt yourself and change. Like, that's the, hard, that's the hard part of Christianity is like, there's not five things to do. It's that you, like, you can't just bend your life back to, like, you have to be melted. You have to be softened. So how do we embrace this new freedom? What does that look like to, to have faith and let that work out in us in love? So three ways kind of to think about how we embrace our, our, new, our new freedom. The first is that you need to, as much as possible, get in the way of the gospel. And this, this illustration probably isn't the best, but it's what happened to me this week, so it's the best I got. But uh, I was running this week, uh, and, and, and a part of my running kind of regimen as I train, uh, I've been doing a marathon in October, um, is I'll run down a running path. But part of my run is, is on a street, and so I'll... I'll run down Merriam Lane and I'll cross streets every now and then. And, uh, but there's not a ton of traffic there, so it's typically pretty safe. So I was running, I was at the end of my, my run uh, earlier this week, and I, I'm crossing, I think it's 53rd Street. And as I'm crossing, about halfway across the street, and this guy is just like flying and he's going to turn right, and he doesn't see me. And so he starts to make the turn, and I literally, I had to jump back to avoid uh, the car. And he slams on the, I mean, it almost drills me. It's like, the, like I realized, like if, I, if he had hit me, I would have like flown like, and not a good flying, like, I mean, I would windshield, like, it would have been a bad thing, and so I, I stop, I jump back, he stops, and we just, like, look at each other, which is, and I think he was mad at me, and I was, like, I was mad at him, clearly, and it was just this weird, awkward exchange, and then he drove off, and I, I, I kept running, but it was just, so I, what, I, what I'm not saying is, like, hey, the gospel, it should, like, hit you like a car and put you in the hospital, that's not what I'm saying, and yet, and yet, what I want to say is that there are, like, there are, there are places and there are practices where, like, you sort of get in the way of the gospel, and it, it like, it can run you over. <laughs> right? And, it, and listen, I need to be more vigilant when I run, but the reality is when I'm on the street, I recognize there are things that can kill me driving by me at all, at all times. I have to be very vigilant. And there are, there, are, there are practices and there are places where you need to go regularly to get in the way of the gospel. And it's why we talk about the spiritual disciplines so much. And we have to be cautious here because what, we, what we're not saying is, listen, you have to earn your salvation, so you better pray, you better read your Bible, you better go to church, like you better, you better fast sometimes. Like that, that's, no, the motivation has changed. It's faith, right? It's we come to the gospel knowing we're accepted, working itself in love. It's inside out change. And so we come to these practices in these places because it's there, it's there that we, we might get put in the fire and softened. Right? I, hope, I hope you don't get up tomorrow and pray, all right, God, from now on, just let me in one more. No, you, you go to pray because it's there you encounter, hopefully, like a loving father who's melting your heart and changing you and making you new, giving you new insights into who he is, how much he loves you, how, how you're accepted through the gospel. The reason why church attendance is so important is, is not because like, we need to fill seats, although we do need to fill seats, that's very important, but, but the reason why you need to come here, like, you need to get in the way of the gospel, and the chances are this morning, you have lots of opportunities for the gospel to get a, ho- a hold of your heart in a unique way. Well, while we're singing, while the scripture reading's happening, um, you know, maybe not the greeting, I don't know, that, that, that's maybe not there, but, but communion, sing, like, there are all of these things we do that say, 
the gospel. Like, listen, God's drawing you in. He's lighting a fire. And may, listen, there are going to be lots of, lots of times you read your Bible, you pray, you come to church, where you fast, where like you don't feel anything. You don't, the fire didn't happen. And that's okay, because this, this is what's so challenging about the gospel. Is I, I don't know when the Spirit is just going to get a hold of you. But the more, you, the more you, you run on the street and get in front of a car, the more likely you're going to get hit, right? And the more you put yourself in places and practices where the gospel can change you and refine you and make you soft, the more likely this type of change will happen. But I want to start, like, you have to get the motivation right. Don't pray or come to, come to church or serve or do anything out of, a, out of a motive that you need to earn your place before. It all is, no, it's faith working through love. We come to the gospel in faith, knowing we are accepted through Jesus Christ, and then we love. Right? And then we live out of that. So first, get in the way of the gospel. Second, um, if you want to embrace your, your, your freedom, you need to love your neighbor. When Paul in, so we're kind of preaching all 14 or 15 verses of Galatians 5, but we didn't read all of them. But when Paul gets to the end of what he's saying in this passage, he goes back to freedom again. And he says, he says this, verse 13, Galatians 5, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul does, this is completely countercultural. That he connects, Paul connects freedom to love and service. Now think about with, uh, freedom with me for a minute. Like our, what is Freedom. And are you free? And if you're not, like, what do you need to be free? What do you, what do you, what, what, if you got it, you had it, would make you free? Because here's the reality. Every one of us here, we live in a culture that all day today and all your life is telling you again and again and again, freedom is to be independent. It's to be free of restraint. It's to be able to do what you want. Which, of course, like, that makes freedom an inherently, an inherently selfish thing, right? Inherently self-centered thing. And Paul says the gospel has freed you. Not so you can sleep in from school and go play golf and skip when you're a senior in high school, like I used it. No, that's not, you're not free. You're free because now you can go love other people. Like really love other You can serve other people. That's what it means that the gospel has made you free. And there's two levels on which this, is, this should be obvious to us, and yet we resist it in so many ways. One is that... Like, think of people who, like, are truly the most free. And I try to think of that. Like, think of our culture's view of freedom. Like, it's to be independent. You can do whatever you want. You're no, no restraints. I think the best example of that are people who were born into a lot of wealth and never had to work any of their life. And had the money to do whatever they wanted and live however they want. Like, would you, like, think of those type of people and say, and, like, do you want to be like them? Right, like think reality show, like Real Housewives, like all of those shows. Like, does that strike you as a particular beautiful life? And listen, no judging if you watch that. You need, y'all, we all need our things. I get it, right? But like, that's not like, that's not like beautiful humanity, right? Like people who are, are just wealthy with no restraints, didn't work for it, right? Just, it was inherent. Like those people tend to have very shallow, and often, I mean, you just watch that show. It looks very enslaving. Or you think the flip, the flip side of, of people who have incredible restraints, some of the most people who people who've lived the most beautiful human lives had significant physical disabilities. 
I mean, think of a Christian like Joni Erickson Tata. If you don't know her, you should look her up. Incredible Christian life. Mother Teresa, who restrained her freedom to serve the poor. Like, it's, it's all around us. This is obvious. The people who are really free to do whatever they want actually live pretty shallow, self-centered lives. And people who, are, who have incredible restraints often live some of the most beautiful human lives that we experience. So in one sense, it's obvious. But in another sense, the reason why Paul says, if you are, if you are free, you're going to love and you're going to serve other people. It's, think of it like this. If, if, if freedom ultimately means I'm independent, like free of restraint, able to do what I want, that actually, it's impossible to love your neighbor if you're, if you're living only for what gives you pleasure, what gives you joy. Because that means everything you're doing is actually for, for you. And so you can have a romantic partner or relationship that, that feels very, very, very two-way, but when that person stops giving you what you want them to give you, well, then you just leave, you move on. Which happens very frequently, and that's a sign. That romantic relationship is really, about, is really for you, not for them. It's about you and, and, and not them. Or if at some point your children or your, your parents become a burden that's, that's just too frustrating and you want to move on, you want to give up on them, well, that shows that your kids were really for you, not for them. It wasn't selfless. It was, it was, it was inherently self-centered. And this is often how uh, we as religious people treat God, right? We pray, we, we try to serve the poor, we do good things, but we're not doing them for God. We're actually doing them for ourselves, to earn our place before God, to merit our salvation, to make sure we're accepted. It's really... It looks like we're doing it for God, but we're actually doing it for us. And so Charles Spurgeon, he has a good illustration about this. He was a preacher in the 1800s. And he told the story, he said, imagine a king, kingdom, and this farmer uh, grows this really impressive large carrot, and he takes it to the king and gives to the king. He says, king, this is the best thing I've ever grown. This is my gift to you. Thank you. Um, and the king takes it, and he's amazed at this gift, and he says to the farmer, listen, you... It's an amazing gift. I'm, you have more land now. I'm going to give you more, uh, more, agriculture, more land to, to grow things and to oversee. Thank you for your generosity. So he does that. And meanwhile, this is happening. The, a nobleman who, who raises horses sees this and is like, if you get that for a carrot, what would you get for a horse? So he goes back. He finds the best horse that he had bred. And he brings it to the king. He says, king, this is the best horse I've ever bred. It's a gift, my gift to you. You take it. Um, and the king says, thank you. Takes the horse and moves on. Leaves. And the horse guy is like, what? wait a minute, like you, gave, you gave that guy like more land and wealth for a carrot. I give you a horse. It's a better gift. And the king responds to the man by saying, no, you, that man gave me the carrot. You gave, you gave yourself a horse. And what I like about that illustration is, is the reason the gospel frees us is if your identity has become so secure in Christ that you can't lose your place before God, whatever sin you commit... Your, your identity is so secure in Christ. It means you don't need anything from anyone. You don't need your romantic partner to give you meaning or, or a, a measure of life that they can't sustain. You don't need your career to give you a meaning in life that it cannot sustain. You don't need your children, your family. You already have it in Christ, which means you can go out and love people not to get something back from them, but just to give, to serve. In the gospel, we can begin to actually truly love our neighbor because we don't need anything from them anymore. And so all that's true, but at the same time, if you want to grow in your freedom, if you want to change, probably the most powerful spiritual discipline you can practice is service. It's finding a place to serve. And, and Paul in particular is focusing on the local church community here. Love 
your neighbor as yourself. Love the people whom you go to church with. And, and the reality is, like, our culture has the opposite view. Is when we start, we start wearing down, we start getting worn out, we say, I need freedom back. I need to stop serving. I need to withdraw. I need to pull back. And Paul's saying gospel freedom is attached to loving your neighbor and serving others. And if you're not experiencing the freedom, the freedom in Christ you want to, you probably need to serve more. And again, not as a do this and you get this, but no, out of, like, look at all Jesus has done for you. How could we not be people who are selflessly looking to serve those around us in church, through our work, in our neighborhood? Freedom is not I get to do what I want. Freedom is I get to give myself away. And our culture is going to try to convince us that is not true. And it, Paul says, listen, you, are, you have been made free so that you can now love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to embrace your gospel freedom, love your neighbor, get in the way of the gospel, and thirdly, meditate on your future. So I, I, want, to, I want to end on kind of in point two, which is, end on what does it mean that like one day we have this hope of righteousness, one day we'll stand before God completely right and good. Do you reflect on that much? Do you think much about what is it, what kind of person are you going to be when God is finally done with you? Like, not in a bad way, but I know he's never done with us. But, like, what, when God finally has made you into all that you were meant to be, what will you look like? What changes are in store for you? I've used this quote before, but I, I, it's too good not to use again because um, I don't think there's a better example. But when C.S. Lewis was reflecting on this, like, the change we're to undergo as Christians he, like, he was clear, like, listen, it's not, you're not a bent rod. You're gonna, it's going to get beaten back into place and sort of look strangely straight. That's not what's going to happen to us. Now, Lewis, he says this. This is how he talked about the change in store for us. He says, for mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men or women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. That if we, if we understand the gospel and we think the gospel means, hey, I can skip school and go play golf today. No. Gospel freedom means not that we get to now ignore like the commands of God because they're irrelevant to our place in the world. Right? The, the gospel doesn't mean that there's more pleasure in this world than what God offers us through his gospel. The gospel means we are meant to fly. And if this morning you're burdened by a sin or a habit, a broken part of you that you've never been able to fix, stop trying to, to bend the rod back. Enter the fire. Come back into the gospel. See the Son of God, Jesus himself, giving himself for you to free you. And ask yourself the question, even if you could merit your salvation, what, like, what would you have to do to make God give you his own son on a cross? Like what could you and I ever perform that would make God say, you know what, my son can die because you did that. And may we give up this the slavery of trying to earn our own salvation and answer that question. There's nothing we could do to merit that. So may we stop trying. May you let God free you of the burden of trying to save yourself. 
May you let God die for you. May, may you let Jesus go onto a cross for you, be buried for you, overcome sin and death for you, be raised for you, and let him melt you in the fire and give you wings to fly. Let's pray. Uh, Father, in many ways, I, the gospel is so much harder to preach because I wish I could just tell us like five, way, five things we all need to do this week and we'll change. And it's so much more complicated than that. God, our sin is so much more complicated than that. And your gospel is so much more powerful than us just kind of doubling down on our effort this week. And so I pray the rest of this morning, God, as we take communion, as we sing, as we listen uh, to your word, God, would you, would you just put our hearts into the fire, melt us, change us. From the inside out, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.